Welcome to Awaken to Grace. I'm Chad Roberts. I'm your Bible teacher today as we are in Hebrews chapter 6. What an amazing section of Scripture this is. And today we are rightly handling, rightly dividing verses 1 to 3. These are complicated Scriptures and they require serious focus. We want to be serious students of the Scriptures. And when it says not to lay again a foundation. What is the foundation that the author has in mind when he says that we are to go beyond these things? We are to move on, press on toward maturity. What exactly are we moving on to? Well, today I'm going to show you from the scriptures why the church, Christianity, is built on a strong foundation. And that foundation just may surprise you. Let's get to it today. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 to 3. The purpose of the book, the burden of the book is not to rescue sinners out of hell. That's not the purpose of Hebrews. The purpose of the book is to mature the faith of born-again believers. If you misinterpret that, you are with certainty going to misinterpret key passages through Hebrews. So for example... When he says, right now in our text, look at it with me, Hebrews 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. That's a major statement. I want to ask you a question today, and I don't want you to answer out loud. But I want you to answer within your mind and within your heart. If I said the goal of your Christianity is what, how would you respond in your heart and in your mind? I would venture to say that probably 90% of us would say the goal of Christianity, the goal of my spiritual life, the goal is salvation. And if you said salvation today, oh, what a world of growth that awaits you that I'm excited for you about. Because the goal of your Christianity is not salvation. Salvation is a fact, not a goal if you're born again. Now, if you're listening today and you're not truly born again, oh, my friend. You must understand what Jesus said. Unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's that mean? You know, I think the truths of Scripture so often are like a diamond that are multifaceted. There are multifacets of the truth. I think in one sense, what Jesus means is Physically and literally, you will never enter the gates of heaven. You'll never see the paradise of God. But I think there's a deeper element to it. 
I think when Jesus said, unless a person is born again, you will not see. In other words, you will not perceive. You'll never understand it. You'll never understand it. Unless you're born again, it is critical. It is crucial. You won't get to heaven without it. Religion won't do it. Your parents won't do it. Your grandmother's faith won't do it. The Bible belt will not do it. Coming to church will not do it. Having good morals, having good intentions, being a kind person, all of those things, the Bible says, falls short. You must be born again. But listen, if you are born again today, that's not a goal. That's a fact. You know, I was talking with my girls this morning. They were talking to me as I was finishing getting ready, and (laughs) I was laughing at them. They were talking about the good old days in our family. (laughs) Now, mind you, 12 and 10 years old, okay? The good old days, back when they were young. And (laughs) And they said, you know, Dad, the good old days, back before the boys came along. (laughs) the goal of my children is not to be a Roberts it's not to be our children that's a fact what's the goal to grow up to maturity that's the goal And I want to tell you as passionately, as pastorally as I can today, the goal of your Christianity ought to be spiritual maturity. To grow up in your faith to the full measure of the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's a lifetime of growth. So what's the goal for you? If you see salvation as the goal, friend, you're just at the beginning line. You're nowhere near the finish line. Paul said, I press toward the mark of the high call of the upward call of God. Amen? I'm pressing. That that word press literally means to strain with every muscle. You get that? You've seen those images of runners. When they get to the finish line, what do they do? They lunge with all their might. That's the imagery that Paul had in mind of our spiritual growth, of our spiritual maturity, of this race that each of us are running. And let me tell you, if all you're doing is hanging around the ABCs of the faith, if all you're doing is around the elementary principles of the oracles of God, the elementary doctrine of Christ, the ABCs, the salvation, you're just hanging around the starting line. And you're not running the race as God intends. Am I making sense to anyone today? But he says, let us press on toward maturity. Oh, I love that. So we said last week, note first the word us there. Because the author of Hebrews was very stern in chapter 5. He said, listen, you're dull of hearing. And in case we would grow hopeless in that, I love that the author includes this pronoun. Many times he says us and we and ours. 
And he includes himself in this company and this followers of Jesus. And I love that because he's saying, no, I'm going with you. What did we say last week? A good leader doesn't point the way. A good leader leads the way and says, follow me. And that's what this author is doing. He's saying, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. What did we define that as? The ABCs of the faith. The ABCs. We said last week we always ought to be a, we, 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 we should never, ever grow to a place where we lose our all of salvation. It should always be amazing to us. It should always stagger us. Peter wrote that you and I have received a salvation so great, he said, that the angels long to look. Friends, that means that angels are amazed at our redemption. Shouldn't we be? Oh, but there's so much more. Let's understand it. By not, well, then he says, go on to spiritual maturity. Now, how did we define spiritual maturity? Remember what he said in chapter 5. Not just having the milk of God's word, but growing into the meat of God's word, into the solid food. Well, how do you know that you're going from milk to solid food as a Christian? How do you know that? And what did we say at the end, uh, chapter 5, verse 14? It's not a head knowledge. It's not how much knowledge you can cram into your mind. It's not being academic. It's not being intellectual. It's not having education or degrees or all of this and that. Although those things are fine, it's not spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is when you grow your spiritual capacity and you increase your spiritual senses. What have we said for several weeks now? Babies have senses. They just don't know how to use them yet. But as you grow and mature, you learn how to use your senses. And what is spiritual maturity? Being able to discern what is good and evil. And when you can discern what pleases the Lord and what doesn't please the Lord, what's right and what's wrong, what's glorifying to God, what's not glorifying to God. See, then you come into this element that Paul lived in where Paul said, whether I eat or drink or whatsoever I do, I do to the glory of God. Do you see? When everything in your life, every decision, every reaction, every response glorifies God, then friends, you're on your way to spiritual maturity. So let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Let us go on to maturity. And how do we do it? Well, now remember what's unique to this audience to these Jews, to these Hebrews. Remember chapter 2, verse 1. They were drifting away from Christ back into Judaism, back into the law, back into the temple, back into rituals and sacrifices. Remember, that's the whole point of the book. Don't trust in religion. Christ is far superior. And so for five chapters now, the Holy Spirit has argued for us, Christ is better than any prophet. He's better than any angel. He's better than Moses. 
He's better than Joshua. He's better than Aaron. He's better than any religion. And now he's going to hammer it home. And he's going to say, don't lay again. Note that word again. A foundation. Now, what did we say last week about a foundation? A foundation is incredibly important because it's what holds the structure. The last thing you want to do is buy a home with a cracked foundation, right? One of the first things you do when you look to purchase a property is you check out, you inspect the foundation. Why? It's critical. In my view, this is the Holy Spirit's Seal of approval on Judaism and what it was. Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he is speaking to us. How? Through his son, Jesus. Exactly. Why is that so important? Because the foundation that God laid was indeed the Mosaic law was indeed the old covenant, was indeed the rituals and the sacrifices, the temple, the priesthood. Yes, those things mattered. And yes, indeed, it is a strong foundation. But friends, once you lay the foundation, is there ever a need to lay another foundation? No. Then you build the structure. And what is God's building? What is God's structure? It is the church of Jesus Christ. And God is building his church. So what happens when you lay a foundation? The foundation disappears as the structure supersedes it. That is what has happened with Judaism. Yes, it was the foundation, but the structure of God's kingdom, which includes the narrative of the church, now supersedes the foundation itself. Now, in light of this idea of Judaism as a foundation, now, why is this so important now? Because now he's going to instruct us Don't go back and relay that foundation. I know there are many brothers and sisters who are all about Hebrew roots. And there's some good things there. There are some... There are some elements there that I think are good. You know, when I remember several years ago, I was looking at our calendar and, you know, I was... Well, I'll call it what it is. I was belly aching to the Lord that our society has so many holidays. I did. I, I, I'm looking ahead at the year, and back then, a holiday really affected our attendance. I mean, you know, we were just much, much smaller as a church, and you have something like Labor Day or Memorial Day or July 4th weekend or things like that, then it just affected us greatly. Now, it doesn't affect us near as much. But back then, it was a big hit. 
And I remember going through the calendar and I'm just counting how many holidays and I'm belly aching to the Lord. I'm like, Lord, that's going to be a, a low Sunday and that's going to be a hard Sunday. And, and I remember, and I just asked the Lord, I said, God, why in the world do we do so many holidays? And I'll never forget it. It's like the Holy Spirit just right then just said, because I'm that way, Chad. You get it from me. The Lord took me to some scriptures in Leviticus where the Lord would say, these days and these feasts are holy unto the Lord. See, we've got our holidays all messed up. Holla, holy day. They're not holy, are they? But there are certain times that is holy unto the Lord. You know, this weekend was Rosh Hashanah, the new year in the Jewish calendar. Terry Whitson just had a tremendous vision for that. And Sadie and I enjoyed such a time of prayer with friends last night for Rosh Hashanah. And maybe nine days or so, it's Yom Kippur. And then at the end of September through the first week of October is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. The Lord says these are holy days unto him. Very interesting. So yes, there are roots to our faith. Yes, we are built on this foundation of Judaism. But we are not to go back to the Old Testament ways. Now, what I had you do last week that I'm going to have you do again this week, and now I'm really going to get into the meat of the teaching now. I want you to do two columns, if you would. I want you to do on the left side a column, and we'll call it shadows. And then I want you on the right side to do a column that we'll call the reality. And I get so excited when I look at Hebrews 6. It thrills my soul when I look at what were the shadows of the Old Testament and what are now the realities of the church of Jesus Christ. I get so excited to look back at the types, the figures, and what is right now the reality for us and that we are to walk in and operate in and live in and minister in. And I tell you, church, these truths will change your life. If you are listening today and you are a brother or a sister who you major on the Old Covenant and you minor on the New Testament, I hope you'll hear me clearly today. If you are a brother or sister that you believe the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament is what we should major in today, friends, I hope you'll hear me very carefully as we try to rightly divide the Word of God. Yes, there's great truth. Yes, there's tremendous element. Yes, it is a foundation. But we are not to go back and lay that foundation again. Let's see what you and I are to be operating in today. So he says, not laying again a foundation. Okay. What's the foundation? Six things. Number one, repentance from dead works. 
Number two, a faith toward God. Number three, washings, or your Bible may say baptisms. I'll explain that. Number four, laying on of hands. Number five, resurrection from the dead. And number six, eternal judgment. Now, remember, all six of these are Old Testament teachings. All six of these are found in the Old Testament. And when the writer of Hebrews pens these words, he has Judaism in mind. He has the Old Covenant in mind. Thus, it is the foundation that God has laid. But we are no longer laying a foundation. We are building the structure. We are the living stones of Jesus Christ. Amen. And God is building his kingdom. When I would go to Cairo, Egypt so often, I would go and speak in churches in Alexandria and Cairo, and I would tell those saints, oh, the pyramids are wonderful. If you've ever been there, they're fascinating. They're tremendous. I love it. I've been all over them. There is a section within the pyramids that you're not allowed in. And they had a guard standing there one day, and I held up a $20 U.S. bill. He snatched it and let me in. And I spent a couple of hours inside the pyramids, running my finger through the hieroglyphics. It was wonderful. But I tell those Egyptians, I'm not here to see the dead stones of the pyramids. I'm here to see you, the living stones of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's building his church. Amen. So what are these foundations and how do they affect us today? What are we to be walking in? What are we to be operating in? Well, let's begin with the shadows. Shadow number one, repentance from dead works. Now we said last week, this term dead works is found one other place. And it's in Hebrews 9, 13, 14. They, the only other place in the Bible this is found. Our repentance in the old covenant, repentance was bringing your sacrifice. Repentance was bringing an animal. It was that day of atonement. It was the blood being shed only for atonement, which only covered sin. And the scriptures call it dead works. Do you know how we repent today? Hebrews chapter 9 makes it very clear. The old covenant could only wash without. But do you know what the blood of Jesus does? It washes within. It does something that an animal sacrifice never had the ability to do. The blood of goats, the blood of bulls, he explains in chapters 9 and 10. It could not cleanse the conscience. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. See, let me ask you a question today. If you have ever truly repented of your sins, do you know what the scriptures tell you that that repentance can do for you? It can cleanse your conscience. Some of you, and I want you to hear me right now, you get in an atmosphere like we were in this morning. You want to worship God 
You want to lift your hands to a holy God. You want to pray. You want to come to this altar. You want to weep before the Lord. You want to pour your heart before the Lord. You want to have joy in the Lord. But then Satan brings up your past and he shuts you down. Oh, don't let him do that. Because you know what repentance now is? Repentance is not from dead works for you. Repentance is out of your conscience. Now your conscience has been cleansed by the blood of the lamb. You're not just cleansed without. You're cleansed within. Amen. So now when Satan comes and says, well, you're not worthy. Well, of course you're not worthy. That's why Christ is magnified. You don't deserve it. Of course you don't deserve it. That's why Christ gets all the glory. Amen. Amen. Your conscience can be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And maybe that's a realm of faith that you need to begin to operate in. That when Satan takes you back to your past and he takes you back to those terrible mistakes and he replays those awful things and he brings up all of this stuff out of your past. You say, no, no, the blood of Jesus has cleansed me. Within and without. Number two, a faith toward God. Now, what did he have in view here by way of foundation? He had in view the nationalistic faith of Israel. All of the nations worshipped pagan gods. Only Israel, the covenant people of God, worshipped Yahweh, the one true God. Now, that was the shadow. What is the reality? If you pay attention, if you pay careful attention through Acts and Romans and all of the epistles, what is now required for salvation, the scriptures say, is faith in Jesus. No man comes to the Father except through Christ. So what the author is Showing the shadow is a faith in God, which was a nationalistic Israel, children of Israel faith, and now a faith in God's Son, Jesus. Why? Why? Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, in many ways, at many times, God spoke to us through our fathers, through the prophets. But in these last days, how is God speaking? Through his son. And that's why if you reject Jesus, you reject the father. You don't know how many conversations I've had with people. Very interesting conversations. Where people have told me word for word, I've got no problem with God. It's Jesus that I don't believe in. Well then, friends, you have a very, very big problem with God. Because there is no way to God except through his son. Can we say amen today? Can you see the shadow? And then can you see the reality? Then he says, instructions, verse 2, about washings. Now, this is very important. Some of your Bibles may say baptisms. Uh, In my view, washings is a much better uh, rendition there. Uh, It's a much better translation of that. Because the word here is only used four times in the New Testament. 
once here and three other places. One of the place is when Jesus explained to the Pharisees that you have washed the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is filthy. Okay. Again, you link that word washings over to chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. The blood of Christ not only cleanses without, it cleanses within. That's exactly what he was telling the Pharisees. Your outside is clean. The inside is absolutely filthy. Some people listening today, you would fit that category. You look like you got it together on the outside. You look like someone who would follow God on the outside, but the inside's filthy. You need to heed the words of Jesus. Has the inside been washed thoroughly, not just the outside? Amen. Washings is a better term here because this goes back again to the Mosaic law. It goes back. What have we said through our whole study? Hebrews is the book of Leviticus. What Leviticus is to the Old Testament, Hebrews is to the New Testament. They parallel each other. And in Judaism, you had all of these washings that were very important. Why? Scripture says cleanliness is next to godliness. God loves cleanliness. But let me tell you, you can be squeaky clean without and be filthy within. Christ, what's the reality? To cleanse within, to wash you within. So what did we say last week? And this is where we finished last week. There are three baptisms that the scriptures teach. Now, I'm very excited. Next Sunday is our next water baptism. And I got several emails this week of people signing up for baptism. I'm so excited for each of you who are going to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Now, let me explain three baptisms that the Lord wants us to experience today. Now, again, what do we say? The Old Testament, the shadow, is an outward cleansing. It is an outward washing. But that's not the reality. The reality is inward. The reality is what Christ wants to do through the Holy Spirit in our lives. What are the three baptisms that the Lord wants us to experience today? Well, number one is water baptism. We call it believer's baptism. Believer's baptism is when you publicly identify with Christ and you publicly express the change you see on the outside reflects the change on the inside. I am following Jesus. I have decided no turning back, no turning back. Amen. And I'll say to you clearly today, if you are born again and you've never followed Jesus in believer's baptism, it is your next step in spiritual maturity It is your next step. I can remember when I was baptized. I was much younger, but oh, how I was so scared of it. The thought of walking into a baptismal pool and somebody laying me back and bringing me back, it terrified me. And I put it off for as long as I could. Oh, I was so scared. And I don't know why my church had a perfect track record. 
No one had ever drowned. No casualties. It was 100% effective. But yet I feared it. And I remember when Sunday evening, my church was doing a baptism. And my mother was all over me. Chad, you need to be baptized. 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 They were, I don't know, some element of that Sunday morning. I was young, but she was telling me, Chad, it's time. It's time. You need to do it. And just to get her off my back, I said, okay, I will. She went straight to the pastor. The pastor went straight to the pulpit and said, Brother Chad's going to be baptized tonight. <sighs> I showed up with floaties and a vet. No, I didn't. I didn't. <clears throat> but I was so terrified. But you know what my mom told me? Boy, a lot of wisdom. My mom said, Chad, you know why you're so afraid? No, I don't know. I'm not afraid of water. I don't know why. She said, because it's spiritual warfare. Satan doesn't want you to take your next step. And she said, I'll tell you this. The moment you're baptized, Satan will never bother you with it again. And guess what? I got baptized with a little twisting of my arm. But I was so glad. And afterward, I thought, what in the world did I fear? Why did I not? Oh, and let me tell you, Satan doesn't want you to follow the Lord. He doesn't want you to publicly identify. And see, it's a little bit different in our culture today than what it was to this original audience. But I want you to understand, when this original audience followed the Lord in believer's baptism, it utterly severed all ties with Judaism. They were no longer welcomed back to the temple. They could no longer do animal sacrifices. They could no longer, for many of them, enjoy family meals. Many of them lost their homes. We'll get to that later in Hebrews 10. Many of them suffered shame and reproach for the name of Jesus. Many lost their jobs. Many were persecuted. Brothers and sisters, you're not facing persecution today. You're not facing a job loss. You're not facing the plundering of your property. So what would withhold you from following Jesus in believer's baptism? Do it this next Sunday and take your next step and put Satan behind you. Can we thank the Lord for that today? Amen. Number two. So remember, these washings, that's the shadow. What's the reality? The New Testament reality is, number one, believer's baptism. Number two, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Being permeated by the Holy Spirit. You know, many times I've done an example where I've had a large pitcher, glass pitcher of water, and I've had a small glass of water. Many times I've poured, it's a little, haphazard, it's a little hazardous for a, for a blind man to do it now, but I would pour that water out of that pitcher into that glass and let it overflow. And I would say, this is salvation. Everybody 
born again has the Holy Spirit within them. You can't be born again without it. You have the Holy Spirit within you. Amen. But what's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is that different? Yes. What is it then? And I would take that glass, that, that glass, and I would take that glass pitcher, and I would take that full glass of water, and I would drop it into that pitcher. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. It's being permeated. It's being saturated in the Holy Spirit to the point where he directs your thinking. He directs your emotions and how you feel. Can we say amen to that? And see, when, the, when these things begin to... Uh, see, again, we're, what are we talking about? Spiritual what? Maturity. We're going on. We're pressing on toward maturity. And when you follow the Lord in believer's baptism and then you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, then you're on your way to maturing. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He helps you think right. He helps you feel right. You know, I was thinking this week, I enjoyed the perfect vacation. I didn't do anything. It was so wonderful. I didn't work at all. I didn't, I didn't, I just, I just, Hung out with the family. That was it. Nothing else. My kids are waterlogged. We just played. It was good. But I got a terrible email this week. I got a terrible email. I rarely get bad emails. But this person, I could not read you the email because it was so filthy language. Told me how they hated my fill-in-the-blanks, as you wish, guts, and how Christians are so fake, and how we just, oh, it was the worst email, and Satan utterly messed up. Because I don't know who this woman is, and I don't know where she lives, but she's on my prayer radar now. And what I'm asking the Holy Spirit is that her testimony will be that she cussed out a blind preacher and it so led to such conviction, the Lord saved her soul. Amen. Hallelujah. And I believe God's going to do it. Oh, I believe God's going to convert her. (laughs) And the Lord took me this week to Philippians 4. Where it says, let your reasonableness be known to everybody. Oh, what a great word. Do you know what the word reasonableness is in Philippians 4? Note that. What are we talking about? Spiritual maturity. We're talking about letting the Holy Spirit direct how you respond and the way you think and the way you feel. When I read that email, my first thought was, she don't know me. She don't know what my church does. She doesn't know the amount of people we help. She don't know what our budget is. She don't know what we give away. She doesn't know the people that we impact. And I wrote her about four good emails in my head. (laughs) You know you're not giving the right response when you have imaginary conversations with people. Oh, you do that, don't you? You have imaginary conversations, don't you? No, what's... Mature. 
reasonableness. Note this. Do you know what reasonableness means? A right response. A mature reaction. How many of you, don't raise your hands, how many of you wish you did not overreact? Now, come on. Can I, can I dig right here for a second? What would your home environment be like if you stopped overreacting to everything? What would your work environment be like if you, not other people, if you stopped overreacting? Spiritual maturity is when you give a right response, a mature reaction. Can you do that on your own? I can't. I need the enablement of the Holy Spirit. I need the influence of the Holy Spirit. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why I need to be baptized, permeated, saturated. Filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Because I need to think right. And I need to feel right. And I need to respond right. Can we say amen today? There is the water baptism. The believer's baptism. There is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that... We walk in his power. We walk in his influence. We yield ourselves over to him completely. And we say, Holy Spirit, I yield to you. Baptize me in you. And then thirdly, the Bible teaches the baptism of sufferings. Suffering is not bad. Now, Peter teaches us don't suffer as a sinner. And we all know what that is, right? We've all made bad choices and then suffered the consequences of a bad choice. We know that. <laughs> Peter says, avoid that. Don't do that. Don't suffer because you make sinful decisions. But if you suffer for the name of Christ, if you suffer for the glory of God, oh, people of God, that's not a bad thing. There's great grace in that. Peter explains in 1 Peter 3 that Christ is our example in suffering. He explains in 1 Peter 4, 1, arm yourselves with this way of thinking that the way Christ suffered, we are to suffer. <coughs> and then he says in verse 19, if any of you suffer according to the will of God, continue to do good. Don't stop in your sufferings. Yes, there is a baptism in the realities of Christ. Believers, water baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the baptism of sufferings. Those are the three ways that God washes us today. Amen. We don't need a ceremonial washing. We don't need a temple washing, a priesthood washing. No. We need these three baptisms. Next, the laying on of hands. Now, remember, when you think of this in terms of foundation, in terms of Judaism, what is this? This is Leviticus 16. This is Aaron laying hands on the head of a goat to transfer the sins of God's people and to let that goat escape. And it all points toward our future salvation. That is the shadow 
But what is the reality? Oh, this gets me excited. Do you realize that the scriptures teach that Jesus taught believers are to lay hands on other believers? We're mandated to do that. Why? Because the scriptures say that when believers lay hands on other believers, they shall recover. Amen. That's the scriptures. We are to pray over one another. So many times we do it way more on Tuesdays because we can't. It's, it's, it's so packed in here. But <coughs> many times on Tuesday nights, people will come forward for prayer and we'll invite everyone to come and we'll lay hands on them. Now, not every church believes in that. And that's highly unfortunate. That's highly unfortunate. There, there are people, you, you should go back on the Awaken to Grace app and you should listen, listen to the sermon series we did called Discovering Your Spiritual Gifts. And you realize God has perfectly fitted his body together and many people have many different giftings. And there are many of God's people who the Bible says they have the gift of healing. What does that mean? Does that mean that they can just, you know, uh, turn that on, turn that off however they want? No, not, not, no. This means that people who have the gift of healing have an ability... God given by the Holy Spirit, just like I have a gift of teaching, just like others have a gift of intercession, like some have a gift of hospitality, like some people have a gift of mercy and compassion, some people have the gift of helps, some have the gift of healing, that they can gather with other believers and pray over the sick and they will be healed. Amen. That's not weird. That's not bizarre. That's not mystical. Friends, that's the New Testament. That's the reality of the shadow. Amen. And there are, and there are many churches and there are many other Christians. They don't believe that. And listen, listen, we're a non-denominational church. If you don't believe that Christians and other believers can lay hands and rebuke sickness and rebuke infirmity and see divine healing in the name of Jesus. If you don't believe that, listen, you're still welcome to come here. You, you, you. Some people are what's called cessationists. They believe all that ceased, all that quit. Listen, you want to you talk, that's fine. I just hope you're never in a position where you need God's people to lay hands on you. Laying on of hands, what is the reality of that? That's believers praying over other believers. You do it in ordination. You do it in setting people apart for the work of ministry. You do it in healing, praying for the sick. Oh, my friends, these things are not church matters. These things are biblical matters that the church would be wise to observe. You have the shadow, you have the reality. Next, you have resurrection from the dead. Now, what is this? See, now it's interesting. The Old Testament taught the resurrection of the dead. It's taught in Job. It's taught in Isaiah. It's taught in Daniel. But they didn't have the full imagery of it. 
They didn't, until Christ came, we didn't fully understand. There are two resurrections of the dead. I want you to note this. The saved and the lost. If it doesn't set well with you to categorize humanity in two sections, the saved and the lost, then you're going to need to take a pair of scissors and you're going to need to cut a lot of the scriptures out. And you're going to need to have some serious arguments with God because it is God, the judge, who categorizes everyone in saved and lost, sheep and goats, right and left. Take Awakened to Grace with you on the go. When you download Awakened to Grace on your device, you will have access to hundreds of resources we create all for free. Sermons, music, articles, and more. Download Awakened to Grace wherever you get your favorite apps.